Hello, everyone. You're listening to Teaching Matters, an audio series exploring the unique needs of today's students. Teaching Matters is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm Scott Titsworth, your host, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. My guests for this program are Dr. Laura Harrison and Dr. Pete Mather. We will be discussing issues raised in their recently published book titled Alternative Solutions to Higher Education's Challenges, An Appreciative Approach to Reform. Dr. Laura Harrison is an Associate Professor of Higher Education and Student Affairs in Ohio University's Patton College of Education. In addition to publishing extensively, Dr. Harrison was named the Distinguished Graduate Faculty Teacher at Ohio University in 2015. Dr. Mather is also an Associate Professor of Higher Education and Student Affairs in Ohio University's Patton College and is currently serving as Interim Dean of University College. Pete and Laura, welcome to Teaching Matters. Thank, Thank you. you. Very glad to have you uh, in our in our studios today. Uh, so let's start by uh, just talking about uh, sort of the core messaging in your book. Um, Pete, maybe if you could describe uh, what you think the core takeaway message is that you would like readers to gain uh, if they pick up your book and take a look at it. Sure. Well, one of the things that motivated the book, and I guess to set that as a backdrop, is there's a, a cottage industry of books out there criticizing um, higher education. There are a lot of negative messages around higher education, and we really wanted to kind of focus on some of the positive things that are happening and how to leverage those those positives into something better. And then we're also talking um, through the book about breaking down some boundaries um, which we'll get into in a little more detail as we talk about the content of the book. Mm-hmm. Now, did you have a certain audience in mind for the book? Is this really geared towards other academics like yourselves, or is it geared towards students, parents? Uh, what what type of people? Yeah, I think it, it certainly would be of interest to, to graduate students who are studying higher education administration, mm-hmm. um, to leaders in higher education, and to potentially to policymakers as well. Mm-hmm. Now, Laura, Pete spoke a little bit about what some of the motivations were for writing the book. Um, How would you answer that question? I think we have to start talking about what's worth preserving in higher education. You know, like Pete said, there's a cottage industry of books, and they often have very dramatic covers and titles like The Destruction of Higher Education or Mm -hmm. The End of the University. Um, There's one out called How Higher Education is Destroying Our Future and Wasting Our Money. And well, I think it's important to be honest about issues and, you know, to correct those issues when we need to. The truth is higher education institutions have outlived most other kinds of institutions. I mean, even the one we're at, 1804, you know, there aren't a lot of businesses that have been around since 1804. Hmm. And so we thought it was important to start with, to open up the dialogue about what is worth preserving. Um, you know, what is it that we want to build from rather than, you know, kind of this destructive narrative that's not, it's first of all very incomplete, but it's also not very hopeful. You know, you read one of those books and you don't necessarily feel great about working in higher education afterwards. So part of it for me too is I wanted a book like this to teach from. Mm-hmm. And and in fact, that negative criticism of higher education we even see in the public discourse around politics. I mean, it's not limited to people writing books. I mean, it's really becoming very pervasive uh, in, in the discourses that we see in the media right now. Absolutely. You know, and I think a lot of that's cost. And, you know, and it may be fair, you know, K-12 has really received a lot of criticism for a long time. And higher ed was mostly protected from that for some reason. And then, you know, through a series um, of events, probably very related to the cost issue, 
raising, higher education did come under scrutiny. And again, the honest attempts to correct what's wrong in organizations we think are good. And we, we do talk about problems to some extent in the work. But if we don't talk about what's worth preserving, we're going to lose the things that are worth preserving. And so we thought it was important to provide an alternative narrative to kind of the death and destruction narrative. Right. Very good. So with those motivations and that core messaging in mind, uh, the book takes an explicit stance in advocating what's called appreciative inquiry. Pete, can you maybe talk about what you mean by that term? Sure. Well, appreciative inquiry um, is a system of organizational improvement that actually came about um, uh, through Case Western Reserve University. David Cooper Ryder and some of his colleagues there in the School of Business developed it as a way to basically talk about how to um, improve organizations. And what they – essentially the argument is, uh, much like um, uh, Laura has articulated, is that we can – we can change for the better if we focus on what is working and leverage what is working. So that's a key element of it. Um, there are particular steps in appreciative inquiry. Sometimes we're using it to talk about the system. Sometimes we're really talking about it throughout the book as an orientation, an appreciative orientation or a positive orientation to looking at how you leverage positives in order to make um, positive changes. So appreciative inquiry, um, as I understand the way you're describing it, is sort of a a philosophy, perhaps, um, that could be used to guide how an organization evolves. It seems to me that maybe even if we could relate it to listeners' personal lives, that that there are ways that we might personally engage in appreciative inquiry and not even know it. Um, This might be an off-the-wall question, but can you think of any really personalized examples of that that might make this really concrete? Sure. And, and let me just kind of to, to back up. Appreciative inquiry came about in the 1990s, and it came about at the same time that positive psychology did. So positive psychology, I would say, is kind of the personal um, parallel of, of appreciative inquiry, which is really about organizational improvement. But both of these fields, and independently, actually, were looking at the narratives around um, their disciplines, organizational change for appreciative inquiry and um, psychology for positive psychology. And in both cases, they were looking at um, a disease sort of model. So, you know, the as we talk about higher education, many people are talking about it as deficient. Mm-hmm. Um, same with personal psychology. People were talking about the deficiencies and focusing on deficiencies. And if you if you eliminate the deficiencies, you get to kind of this – um, baseline, but not really, you know, um, you know, powerful kind of personal improvement or organizational improvement. So, um, from a personal standpoint, things like lo- looking at what helps a- an individual thrive, not just how do you rid yourself of of kind of pathology, I guess, but how do you actually thrive? So, there's a lot of science in in this that um, supports personal growth, personal development. Um, and science around, um, you know, research around things like exercise, around meditation, that actually help people to, um, to, to, to gain strength and thrive rather than just eliminate the negatives. Right. Very good. So I don't want to – I hope I'm not positioning this incorrectly, but Laura, it seems to me that in, in your book you're positioning appreciative inquiry – as a way of thinking about changing an, uh, the focus of higher education. 
in, in juxtaposition to two other sort of perspectives, uh, scientific management and hol- holism. Can you talk about those a little bit? Because because later in the book, you actually link those perspectives to the way that we talk about higher education. So I think it's really important to understand those perspectives because of the implication it has on the discourses surrounding higher education. Sure. I'll try to be brief. Okay. I, I, usually, <laughs> I usually get about three hours to explain yeah, the difference yeah. here. So in a scientific management perspective, organizations are machines, right? They can be broken down into parts. You can look at them reductively. Um, It's a fairly simple understanding of an organization. In a systems approach, an organization is more like traffic, right? So when we're sitting in traffic, we feel like it's the traffic is the other people, but in reality, we're part of the traffic, right? So it's a more holistic understanding of and maybe a more complicated understanding of an organization. So these different approaches to organizations lend themselves to different kinds of interventions. So in a scientific management perspective, um, management comes from the top down. It's very hierarchical. So the idea is if something's wrong, fix it tweak it. it. It lends itself to fads a little bit because it's always about control, mm-hmm. right? In a systems approach, um, there's a holistic understanding that we're all part of the potential solution and the problem. So strategies can come from anywhere. Um, I think a systemic approach is a little bit more in line with an appreciative approach as well. So um, it's not so much how do we do more things, but you might ask the question of are we doing the right things? And so I think in that framework, there's a lot more possibility for change um, in an organic way rather than in this top-down, let's fix things. Fixing things isn't necessarily a problem, but not everything lends itself to an easy fix. And so I think the systemic approach gives us a wider range mm-hmm. of possibilities, including looking at you know, not just how do we do more things, how do we do them quicker, but how do we really examine are we doing the right things and keep kind of asking that core question about the mission of our organizations. Mm-hmm. Pete, you've had several different roles at the university. Have you seen uh, in your own experiences the way that some of these ideas play out in the day-to-day life of the university? Sure. I I think, um, and I, my career in higher education, is it spans about 30 years, so I've been in a lot of different roles. And I early in my career, I was a student affairs professional, and I think um, and mostly focusing on the co-curricular, that is the out-of-classroom education. Um, and, and then more recently, I was a faculty member, so I kind of draw from both of those experiences. Often we talk about those being very separate and where in, in the classroom and in research, the rational is privileged and maybe out, out of the classroom, the emotional is privileged in some ways. And so a lot of what we're talking about is integrating those things and breaking down a lot of the walls. And I think that's part of the systems approach Mm -hmm. is understanding that these boundaries that we've created are often not real. I think by and large at the institution, you know, if you're sitting in a meeting, a decision-making meeting, and depending on the particular context, but often what appears to be the most attached and rational argument might win. Mm -hmm. Um, So... But but when you can actually blend kind of the affective argument, too, with the rational, I, certainly not a good idea to exclude the rational, um, but, but to understand that decisions aren't 
made just rationally. I think a lot of times we like to pretend they are, and mm-hmm. and they rarely are. But to acknowledge and and to actually surface kind of different dimensions of an argument in making policy policy decisions or practice decisions, and so I think you know f- from a practical standpoint. You know, say say you are sitting in a university level decision making meeting or a departmental level decision making um, meeting, then then I think voicing sometimes the integration of those rational and emotional or affect are are powerful sometimes because people sometimes um, you know one may be marginalized, the affective may be marginalized, but I think people kind of it's it's refreshing and new to. To bring a more integrated argument into mm-hmm. into the boardroom, if mm-hmm. you will. So, so basically, my my takeaway is that there are different ways to think about how a university operates, and certainly your your book does a great job of laying out some of those. And you and you use uh, appreciative inquiry as the as the approach or the perspective that you would advocate. One of the things that I thought was really interesting, you know, because of my background in, in your book, is how you started to link those different perspectives to the way that we talk about higher education, whether that be, you know, in, in conversations like this or in the public discourse or what we see politicians saying. So I want to turn and talk about that um, just for a few moments. Um, Laura, in in um, one of the chapters in the book, you all talk about the theme of crisis that surrounds discourse on public education and higher education. Can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. Well, the language of crisis is used frequently. So both in the scholarship and in the more mainstream narrative about higher education. So there's a lot about, you know, are students learning? Are they employable? Um, Is higher education doing what it claims to be doing, especially given the increase in cost, right? And those are legitimate questions. But I think the pendulum has swung from Maybe universities not focusing enough on learning outcomes and teaching and really explaining that and making that case to a situation where, you know, it's talked about like students don't learn anything and they're just partying and, mm-hmm. you know, higher education institutions are failing, um, which is different than saying let's correct these things. It's saying, you know, the whole organization is failing rather than, you know, we, we need to be making a case um, or at least communicating our value a little bit more clearly. So even though, yes, we could do a better job around student learning and developing student learning outcomes and, you know, helping students understand why gen ed is important and, you know, not just two years that you have to get through until you get to your major. I mean, I think all of those things are legitimate claims. Higher education still has great outcomes, you know, whether you want to talk about the monetary, you know, income outcomes throughout a person's life or, you know, people who are involved with higher education. They vote in greater numbers. They're more civically involved. They have better health outcomes. But I think because we haven't been pressed to tell, tell that story, you know, we're sort of letting the crisis narrative dominate the discourse without understanding what that's doing to us. You know, I think sometimes when I talk to people, they're annoyed by it or they they don't think it's fair, but they don't always understand that we actually need to be providing an alternative discourse because if this is all that's out there, you know, mm-hmm. people people vote with this in mind. People decide whether they want to support higher education with this in mind. So I think, you know, at least we need to provide a corrective or balance to this idea that higher education is always in crisis all the time. Yeah, and and either of you can answer this one. I mean, do you think that this this 
narrative of crisis that does seem to permeate so much of what we see about not just higher education, but really K-12, does that narrative of crisis help us identify what some of the problems are so that they can be fixed? Does it conceal them? You know, how does that, how does that discursive uh, lens, if you will, of crisis impact our ability to really move forward? Yeah. So uh, can I pick that up? Go ahead. I might, I might have a follow-up, but yes, you can take it first. Yeah. I, I think sometimes the crisis narrative, it's not that it's wrong that there's a problem, but it narrows the problem and often reduces it. So there's a reductionist kind of idea where you don't really see the complexity of the issue. And the other thing to kind of go back to more the philosophy of appreciative inquiry, it, if you focus too much on, on the problem, you kind of take your identity from the problem. And, and so there's less hope of actually improving. And I've, I've used an example, and dare I use it here? I think I will. Um, again, you know, the the party school narrative um, at Ohio University. And I know a few years ago, I was um, visiting my friend's office, the dean of students um, here, and, and they had just learned that they were number two on the party school list of the Princeton Review. And of course, there were a lot of concerns about that, and and it is a you know legitimate concern both from a PR standpoint and from a real life standpoint, and a lot of resources and attention is given to that. That's not bad, but but when you actually attend to just the problem, and just focus on the problem or the crisis, there's really, as I said earlier, there's not much hope of getting better. So I. In, in this case, I remember walking back to my office and I was um, looking through some news reports and I saw this list of top 10 community-engaged universities. And I sent a message to my colleagues and, and um, the administration and said, wouldn't it be great to focus on being on a list like this? <laughs> and instead of putting all our attention on what list we don't want to be on. Right. And, and I think that's where we... Um, you know, we get in the way of actually improvement when we focus too much. It's kind of ironic, but by focusing too much on the problem um, or problems, in particularly when there's this crisis narrative, when there's mm-hmm. a focus that there's something, this one thing that we really need to attend to, and it takes away from the broader perspective of all the things that might contribute to it and all the things that might leverage um, to toward improvement. Mm-hmm. Laura, do you want to add? Yeah, just two quick points. First, I think when we cling to a crisis narrative, it's disorienting. So we just say, oh, the students aren't learning anything. Well, they can't not be learning anything. Is it, you know, some of the responsibility or irresponsibility around alcohol is an issue that we might need to deal with, or we might not need to deal with that. And we need to look at what list we do want to be on um, to kind of piggyback on Pete's point. So I think the first problem is it distorts the problem by creating a too big picture kind of vague idea of the problem. Um, but secondly, and I think maybe even more importantly, it crisis narratives make people open in bad ways, I think, to a bunch of solutions that would not be politically tenable if we had respect for the institution. So, you know, if you look at our K through 12 partners, the result of a lot of crisis slash negative narratives about K through 12 education is, well, let's create teacher proof education. Let's test all the time. Let's, you know, try to systematize education because the teachers, you know, aren't doing it well. And thankfully, I think we're seeing a backlash to that. I think enough people have positive experiences with their kids' teachers and, you know, K 12 teachers, I think, are more accessible in some ways than college faculty. And so, I think 
an alternative narrative has been created there. Mm-hmm. And teachers are saying, look, some testing is okay. Some, you know, standardized curriculum is okay. But there are a lot of things we need to do in the classroom that are positive and beneficial. And we don't want to detract from that. And so I think a real reason to take the crisis narrative idea seriously is that, you know, if we really think these institutions are in terrible shape or not doing their work, then it's easy to say, well, let's divest from them. Let's privatize them. Let's, you know, not support these institutions rather than, you know, let's help them continue to build on what works and, you know, improving those things and fixing the things that, you know, might need a correction. Yeah, very good. If I could just pick up on that, I think one of the things Laura's kind of illustrated here is when you actually narrow the problem to a crisis, you're also narrowing the solutions. And Mm -hmm. and you kind of look for a silver bullet, and that's what is common for people to do in public discourse is to look for a silver bullet. And we do that on college campuses too. So, I mean, and usually both the problem and the solution is going to be a lot more complex than just that one one thing. Right. It's interesting that if you think about, um, you use the personal analogy of health, that if, if um, you know, not to oversimplify things, but if you, if you want to improve your health, you don't focus on one health issue and then try to fix that and assume that all the other problems go away. You try to focus on some positive things that can impact yourself from a health standpoint, positive in a lot of ways. You exercise, you, you, you stop doing um, you know, things that are harmful to your body, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but you don't focus on, on one of those in isolation, which is what maybe that crisis mentality is sort of like at times. Yeah, so. yeah there's a, a limit to the attention we can place right. on the positive or negative. And if you, one illustration of this is think about a little child running down the sidewalk and they trip and fall. And you have two choices as a as an adult or a parent, and you can say, "Oh my gosh, are you okay?" And they're going to be thinking, "Oh, I guess I'm not okay because of the way you're reacting, right?" But if if you say, "Get up and and run on, let's keep running," um, they're actually not going to be thinking about right. that stumble, right? And so there's a parallel to the way that we operate day to day, I think, in in the university. Yeah, uh, Pete. You know, in, in thinking about appreciative inquiry, and and particularly how that perspective that you all are advocating in your book is is something that could guide the way that that we try to enact leadership in higher education. How do you think that appreciative inquiry might be an approach that would be particularly beneficial to the contemporary post millennial students that we're going to be having in our universities? Yeah. Um, There's actually a a specific model that takes appreciative inquiry in this organizational change to um, work directly with students, and it's called appreciative advising. And it actually takes some of these same steps that that organizations use in change and adapts them for individual work with students. And basically, it's and you can do this either informally or formally, but in a classroom or in an individual situation. But essentially, you. Um, begin with the assumption that that students have had some positive experience that's going to contribute to their learning and to their future and or their future, whatever the goals are that you have for mm-hmm. a classroom environment or an advising um, kind of relationship. And so you begin with this idea of, of really helping to surface those that they rec- so they recognize that they have certain strengths and gifts and that kind of thing. And then once they actually see those and recognize those strengths and gifts, then you help them interpret and translate those into goals and um, for the future and, and activities that they're engaged in in a learning environment. So um, 
one of the there, there are actually there's a formula of four D's that are used in appreciative inquiry and also um, in appreciative advising. The first one is discover, which is basically through conversation um, with students. They again discover what their assets are and what their strengths are. And the second is dream. Knowing that you have these, what are ways that you can actually think about these in the future? Um, and what what might you like to do? What might you, be the possibilities for you in the future? And the third is design. And to take those dreams and possibilities and really try to um, develop a plan out of that and deliver is actually to actualize it in some way through giving them kind of personal things like internships or experiential opportunities to put those into practice and then continue to learn from them. So I think there are essentially, I think, in our conversations and interactions with students, I think setting up a goal-focused kind of approach where that recognizes the strengths that those students have. It sounds very well. personalized that, it, you know, the learning experience for the student should be very personalized based around, you know, the, the appreciative approach to helping them understand their own strengths. That's right. Yeah, yeah. very much so. I, I think it is, but you can also, um, you know, make it work in a in a classroom mm-hmm. kind of environment. And I think as an instructor, for me, it's the idea of coming into the class and saying, thinking about what the goals are for the class and ke- connecting it to what I know about the students as a group and and really connecting it to and valuing their experience in the mm-hmm. classroom. It's a, a constructivist approach, really, um, mm-hmm. with with a particular appreciative goal in mind, that is right. some kind of positive goal that, that um, basically shapes and steers your your work. Yeah. Laura, one of the things that we know about students is that they are very uh, literally tuned into technology. Um, you know, many of them will come to the university with not just one screen, but, you know, up to five screens, uh, you know, to be able to access information, uh, you know, from moment to moment. How do you think technology is changing the learning experience for students? And, and how do you think that it fits into what you all are talking about with respect to, you know, the discourses of higher education and appreciative inquiry and those sorts of things? Sure. Well, first of all, some of them are bringing five screens to campus. You know, I think I think part of the narrative is that young people love technology and are all technophiles, and there's some truth to that. But there there are still digital divide issues. Um, I think too. You know, I had an experience. My first online class I taught here, students had an option they could take the class online or in person. So these were students who opted in to an online class, and after a couple of weeks on the discussion board. One of them said, wouldn't it be great if we could meet in person? And everybody's like, yeah, that would be great. And I had this moment of thinking, wow, that's what's new and exciting to them. I think sometimes we forget they grew up with Twitter and Facebook and like the things we might think are cool and integrating technology in the classroom, they sort of already grew up with. And so sometimes that relational, for lack of a better word, old school um, approach to being in a classroom and not being online is sort of the new black or what's mm-hmm. really exciting to them. So that said, I think technology provides a lot of great opportunities in terms of, um, I had a colleague who I, um, Sean Dickers, who helped me think through this. And he was explaining to me just the beauty of things that are boring to teach and learn, such as foreign language vocabulary or math drills or that kind of stuff is really conducive to an online educational experience the more you can make that like a game Mm -hmm. the better um discussing poetry philosophy that kind of stuff not always 
that's often better in the classroom. So I think if it's used thoughtfully, intentionally as good pedagogical design, that's wonderful. I think if it's used to charge a lot of students a lot of money and to give education on the cheap to particularly low socioeconomic status students, then I think we really need to critique that practice a little bit more than we do. Mm-hmm. As Just a quick follow-up. You also, in that, in that same uh, section of the book where you're talking about technology, mentioned the word relational pedagogy. Yes. What does that mean? That has to do with building rapport so that people can learn. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think sometimes we forget, especially the older we get, learning is – there's vulnerability in that. I mean, just by – definition of being a student, you're saying, I don't know this, and I'm going to expand this weakness or deficit or whatever it is you want to call it. So I think in order for people to take risks and to be in classroom situations where there's a certain degree of rigor, the strength to do that comes from the relationship. It comes from a teacher uh, believing in you, helping you access those strengths, um, making it safe for you to take risks and to take chances so that you can stretch and grow and um, you know do all the things we know through years of good learning research really help students. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the source for that has to come from that foundational rapport. I, to me, warmth and rigor are – you need a, a lot of yeah. both of those to have good – good yeah. classroom teaching, particularly at the post-secondary level. Yeah, it is sort of the yin and the yang of, you know, a great classroom is yeah. having both of those together. Mm-hmm. Kind of building on that notion of relationships, Pete, um, in, in one of the chapters that I, I got the feeling that you had a hand in, 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 in writing, <laughs> um, you, you talked about the notion of community, and you specifically cited an example of a trip that you may do Honduras uh, to illustrate why community is so important in learning. Can you recount just a little bit of that? I thought it was fascinating. Yeah. So um, I I guess to piggyback on Laura, too, I mean, I do think community is really at the heart of learning. I mean, some of it, some of our work happens at individual times, you know, where we're we're doing things, um, you know, in a solitary way, but so much of it, rich learning happens um, collectively. And so, and and unpacking the whole idea of, of community in that Single chapter was a big challenge and daunting, but um, but but to use the example of the Honduras experience, I I decided when I came here as a faculty member, I I, I had seen you know so my prior work was at the Carter Center where I um, led a um, internship program where students were working on international humanitarian activities, and one thing that struck me there was students who were involved in these real world issues like poverty reduction and so forth were. Um, well, these are huge, daunting, vexing kind of issues that you're not going to easily solve, but but they were together in a community working on those things. And so when I saw that and saw how what a rich, dynamic learning environment it was, I wanted to try to replicate that in some way when I came to Ohio University. So I developed a service learning program in Honduras and would take groups of students, usually between 10 to 15 graduate students, um, into this high poverty um, rural area, and we do various activities. But one of the really rich aspects of it is was the group that we took. The community that I took with me was um, a diverse group. So we would have students from Africa, and we'd have students from Columbus, and we'd have students from Appalachia, and it would be you know this really rich um, blend of people who were having this um, hands-on experience, so- working side by side with people and in communities and um, 
and we'd get to know the people that we'd work with over the two weeks that we were there. And, you know, it, it was from a community standpoint, it was rich on so many accounts. First of all, we'd go into a community that's very different from what we had. And mm-hmm. So people would actually reflect on what does that mean? And often – Back to the technology issue, these small communities in Honduras sometimes didn't – there was no electricity. So they were, mm-hmm. didn't have kind of the technology that was dividing the people. But you'd see these rich connections among um, among neighbors and things like that. And the students would see that. And that you know kind of informed their way of thinking about the labels and, and the baggage we have associated with people living in poverty, just needing – our help from a stand, one standpoint. And then it also, because of the conversations around these experiences and the text, which was our work with people in the community, um, we saw the very rich different perspectives that people had. And we could have those conversations in pretty intimate groups, but very diverse groups. And so that really highlighted, I think, some of the richness of you know ways that, that we can actually really leverage community here in some ways, it's easy to do it when you're on a on a study abroad program like that and a service learning program. But um, finding ways to leverage those kind of similar experiences where you develop this this community where people have different come in with different perspectives and different experiences, but are really interested in learning from each other because you quickly realize nobody has the the answer, mm-hmm. right? And so it. It muddies things a little bit, makes things, you know, people are aware of kind of the vexing issues that we're dealing Mm -hmm. with. And that's so important for people, emerging adults, right, to understand that that there aren't easy answers around these things and sometimes we need to do this together. And so that's really, I think, at the heart of what Mm -hmm. the community chapter was about. So reading the book, it's clear that both of you are very passionate about teaching as you as you've gotten to the end of the book project now, uh, and and you know it, it's wrapped up, it's published. Ha, have you started to think about how you can take the principles of a, of appreciative inquiry, um, you know, positive deviance that you write about in the book, and things like that? Has that played a role in how you teach your classes now as as professors? Absolutely, I. You know, one of my pet peeves is all the bashing of millennial students mm-hmm. and maybe post millennial. Now that we're getting that generation. And I just, I really think it's harmful. You know, if you don't, I'm I'm a Rogerian counseling person at heart. And so I really believe in this unconditional positive regard idea and not in some Pollyanna view. I mean, we all have rough days in the classroom. We all have a student who turns in something late. And, you know, I think it's okay to be frustrated by that. I don't think you have to, you know, be positive 100% of the time. But I think if you don't start from the point of view that, People are in your class because they want to learn. They have many gifts. You know, your job is to facilitate students working at the edges and the frontiers of their ability and identifying and leveraging those strengths. I think if you start from that place, you just end up in so much better of a space Mm -hmm. than if you're kind of reducing all the little bumps to generational issues or, you know, I, I joke that I think a lot of like the millennial student bashing is our own anxieties about getting older. You know, we like to say, oh, the students are getting younger. You know, we all know that's not what's actually happening. Um, So I think the more we can own that part of it, it also, at least for me, I'm, you know, a little bit introverted, a little bit um, not always in love with public speaking. And so it also allows me to take the focus off myself and focus on, you know, not teacher centered learning, but student centered learning Mm -hmm. and really, um, 
starting with all the wealth of gifts. You know, I think it really, one thing I really learned from Pete actually is this difference between a scarcity and an abundance mentality. And when you start with the idea that your classroom is abundant, there's a lot there for you to work with. I think it reduces the anxiety. It helps you work from what is working and just creates a much more pleasurable experience. Yeah. Uh, we, we don't have time to go down this path, but what you just said reminds me so much of Parker Palmer and yeah. Yeah. you know his, yeah. his discussion about how teachers you know, oftentimes enter the classroom with fear because they feel like they have to control everything perfectly. Right. And man, if you just walk in and, and, and view your students as being part of the teachers of that moment, mm-hmm. you gain so much. Pete, what about you in your classroom? Yeah. And I, I want to say that there are several Parker Palmer yeah. references <laughs> in, the, in the book too, but I, I think, I mean, very much what Laura said I think is true for me. I, You know, there is – and I know this is true for me and a lot of the positive psychology research points to a negativity bias that people have, you know, that's um, sort of evolutionary – you know, developed through evolutionary processes and things. But um, so an example of this is when I get my um, teaching evaluations at the end of the semester. If I step back and I'm objective about those, then – you know, 95% of them are maybe very, very positive, and there may be 5% that are negative. And, and my tendency might be to focus on the 5% right. that are negative. Right. It's very common, right? And this is something mm-hmm. that resonates with most teachers. And, um, but, but the strategies around positive psychology and appreciative inquiry help you come out of those. And, and the, the result is very, very positive with students. I mean, I think students, um, you know, do appreciate being in a classroom like that. And, you know, if, if students are having a bad time, you usually have a bad time as an instructor too and vice versa. So so it really is there's some real symbiotic, you know, uh, processes going on there where, where people are playing off of each other. And so um, when you do kind of – and not – again, not that problems don't exist in the classroom, but – but if you really do focus on the good things that are going on and set the class up as much as you can that way, um, the results are very satisfying um, as, a, as a teacher. Uh, I, I've got one, just one additional question, uh, and then I think we're ready to wrap up. But I think it's an important one. I, I think your answers about how teachers can view this is great. If you were giving advice to a student, what would you say? In terms of using appreciative inquiry yeah. in their learning? yeah. You know, again, I think to start from your strengths, you know, understand that you have those, leverage those, because I think that's where you get the strength to deal with your growth areas, right? And so, you know, and that's, I think, where you also get to make analogies and you get to reframe things in ways that make sense for you. And so I think that's the first part is to, you know, it helps you develop a tolerance for the vulnerability and, you know, the things that are hard about receiving feedback and stretching and all those things we know have to go on in the classroom for people to get from where they are to where they want to be. Um, I think to spend some time on that. And I, I just consider it part of my job as a teacher to sell that because I think we've, you know, as a society, sometimes we don't value reflection and kind of the soft skills enough. And I think to, help students understand, no, there's actual research that says that this works. This isn't just me being your, you know, liberal hippie teacher or whatever, you know, whatever stereotype you have of college faculty Mm -hmm. in your mind. This is actually um, very practical as well. I think a lot of times that um, kind of helps get students on board. Mm -hmm. 
Pete, anything you want to add? Yeah, just uh, just that I, I think students sometimes, and I've noticed it with our cohorts, we have these small cohort groups, that there's often a tendency for them to compare themselves to each other and often not in a flattering way. You know, they'll recognize other people's strengths before they recognize their own. And so I think um, – you know, so it really does make a difference when you can actually highlight the strengths that people have, and when you when people do that, they can value the strengths that their their classmates have mm-hmm. more fully, and and it, again, it, it builds a better community. I think. Absolutely, I think it goes back to that abundance idea. There's enough strength for everyone. There's enough praise for everyone. You know, everyone. Yeah can cross the finish line. Um, someone else's achievement doesn't create a scarcity for you. Um, but I don't know that we always say that to students. Mm-hmm. You know, It can seem so obvious, but I think making that a part of teaching and sort of selling students on that idea, I think would help us get further um, in connecting those dots for students. And I want to be clear that it's not just students that do that either. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so I think when we can model that, and I think, you know, Laura and I and, I, and, and our other colleagues too, have we've built a nice community among ourselves, and I think mm-hmm. modeling that for students is, is helpful. I want to so thank the two of you for coming in and, and talking about your book. I thought it was such a great read, um, as I told you, um, in inviting you to interview it. It spoke to a lot of the things that, that not only have I believed, but have you know felt very important to my own uh, way of teaching. Uh, and so it was just a you know from a teacher and from an administrator, I think that your message of looking at the looking at the big picture, finding what's positive about it, and trying to accentuate that is such a such a compelling message that it, it seems simple on Facebook. But as you point out so articulately in the book, there are so many things that pull us away from that, away from that mission. Uh, And and I think that this idea of focusing on um, the the positivity through appreciative inquiry uh, is something that could really benefit, um, you know, anyone that is a student, a faculty member, an administrator, a university, uh, or someone that just cares about teaching and learning. So I want to thank you for doing the book. I think it's a very important message. And I want to thank you for being a part of Teaching Matters. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Scott. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters, produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org backslash perspectives. Our audio engineer is Adam Rich, and I'm Scott Titsworth, your host. Special thanks go out to Timothy Vickers of Ohio University's Center for Teaching and Learning for his assistance in producing this program. On behalf of WOUB Public Media, thank you for listening, and have a great day.